Welcome to Mark My Words, a podcast that not only aims to inspire and teach the listener about entrepreneurship, it also aims to give my guests an opportunity to talk about their unique journey in entrepreneurship and life. So join me and my guests as we meet at the crossroads on Mark My Words. So I know I've probably said this a few times on Mark My Words, but one of the reasons that I really like doing this podcast, other than meeting all the great entrepreneurs that I've met, is just the variety and the great range of not only the from one guest to another, but just within some of my guests' career and lives, just the variety of experiences that they have had. And today, my guest, Dave Combs, has quite the range as far as experiences go. He has gone, and his career spans several decades, he has gone from IT systems development back in an era where I think most people would scratch their heads and be like, what the heck are you talking about, to running his own music business and to even from there, writing a song that really resonated with a lot of people and really took his career to a new level. And he's been an author, he has his own business, he's worked in corporate America, and He's Dave Combs. Welcome to Mark My Words. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Mark. It's good to be here with you. Great to have you on the show. Great, again, as I told you before we kicked off, great to have you here as my first guest in Florida. I took a hiatus to move to Florida. I actually took your advice because it got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm having to take my cats out of the house for all these open houses and all this stuff going on. I'm like, you know, Dave was right. So I need to just not do the podcast for a while. And that proved to be great advice from somebody who I'm sure we're going to learn has a whole lot more from where that came from. So thank you for that. And thanks for being here. Well, I'm glad that it worked out for you. It looks like you're comfortably ensconced there in Florida. And uh, as we said before we started recording, be prepared for some warm weather coming around the corner. A little bit different than where you came from. So, But I'm sure you're ready for it with your air conditioning and hope it, work, it works well. And it, you'll have a good time, I'm sure, in the state of Florida. Yeah, I'm already having a pretty good time. I know that kind of held me up a little bit from getting production going. I'm like, you know, I just want to go to the pool, go to the beach. I want to go golfing. I want to like just take in Florida a little bit. So it's been a great time and I'm very happy to be back. Very happy to have you as my first guest coming back from the hiatus. And enough about me. Let's talk a little bit 
about you and you have had quite the career and you have seen quite a few changes over the years and it's going to be really interesting for me to learn a little bit more about you because when I look at like I'm on LinkedIn right now I'm going all the way back to when you were getting a bachelor's for math and computer science this is in like the 60s I mean is this something that you were interested in growing up like computer science like I know we're going back a long ways but how did you get interested in computer science and IT? Well, I guess if, if my mom was were still alive today and you ask her about me as a little boy, she would say I, he's the little boy that would get a new toy or new something. And instead of playing with it, he would take it apart to see how it worked. <laughs> I, I'm one of those kids. I always was curious. I loved science. I, I still do. And I'm always very curious, uh, want to know how things work. I was always pretty good at fixing things around the house. I could help my mom fix her sewing machine when something would go get tore up on that. But I'm always, and when technology came along, when I was a senior in high school, I was going to be an architect. I had taken drafting and all those kind of preparation things to be an architect. Well, I had a bit, we had one of those guest visitors come to the high school and do a, a program for us. And his name was Stan Johnson. He was a math professor at East Tennessee State University. And he came to talk to us about something new at the university. And it was called a computer. And now this computer was the size of a, my roll top desk that I'm looking at over here. It was huge. It was huge. It had 30K of memory, 30K, not 30 megabytes, 30K <laughs> of memory. Anyway, he came to our our, our auditorium and talk to us and he was I was so enthralled by what he had to say about computers and the things that they could do automatically and so fast uh, a, a switch went off in my mind that said okay architect off computers on <laughs> and so from that point on my life was focused on technology and I wanted in my training to learn how everything I could learn about computers. But it turns out that I did go to East Tennessee State University. I was a math major and a physics minor. And I worked for Stan Johnson, ironically, all four years of my being in college as a student worker in the computer center. So he taught me everything that I, I could, could possibly be taught about that computer in the computer center, how to program it and all those kind of things. And so I was prepared. So when I graduated from college, I had four years of experience with computers. And so Western Electric was a big technology company that was part of the Bell system. And it was the manufacturing arm of the Bell system. Back then, the Bell system made everything to do with telephones, all the equipment. And they needed a lot of systems to help their, their factories and everything they did. They were upgrading to modern computer technology. They needed computer programmers. I interviewed with Western Electric on one day, and then he offered me a job on the spot. He says, Dave, you got four years of experience. I need programmers. He said, I'm prepared to make you an offer. And I said, well, Bob, I'm prepared to accept it. 
so anyway, I got my job and, and uh, I started, I graduated on the 6th of June and I started work on the 16th of June, 1969, as a computer programmer, programming, the program language was COBOL on this big, uh, 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 big mainframe computers that uh, Western Electric had in the data center. So that was the beginning of my life as, as a technology person, and I've, 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 I guess I'm still bitten by the technology bug today. I love computers. When Apple comes out with a new something or other, I'm usually one of the first to buy it. So I'm an early adapter, I guess you would call. Yeah, I'm kind of similar because when you talk about being a kid, taking things apart, now I didn't do a whole lot of that because I didn't want to get yelled at, but... <laughs> I would tinker a lot with like black and white TVs and I would like take those apart and I would like try to move the antenna around. I'd be like, oh, wow. I So I grew up in the Philadelphia area and I would pull in such and such channel on whatever day. I'd be like, wow, this is amazing. And yeah. I do all kinds of stuff like that. So for me, I can kind of relate in a lot of ways. Now, I didn't grow with computers in quite the way you did. Like you, you grew from the infancy of <laughs> computers. Like I don't think a whole lot of people around today can lay claim to that. And you were involved with the growth of it, which is amazing. I mean, I tell people about my Candy 1000 in like mm -hmm. 1990 and how I grew with the internet and all that stuff. And that doesn't even compare to what you've seen. Now, one quick question about all of that is are computers and just computer programming and the speed of everything, is it what you like imagined it would be, or is it like way beyond it? Well, I think the technology uh, and the speed and the capacity and the capabilities of the technology we have today, I, I don't think I, our very, very few people really imagined that level. I mean, yeah, there were a lot of science fiction and, you know, we had, uh, Dick Tracy back in the 1950s, 40s, whatever, that, that cartoon uh, strip. And right here it is, right on my wrist. Dick Tracy and his, you know, his, his phone call right on his wrist. Now, whoever came up with that concept with that was a visionary. They obviously, they were seeing into the future. They might have, may not have known they were, but they certainly were. And, you know, there's a lot of things. And who knows, here we are in, you know, 2022. What's it going to be like in 2032, 42? Uh, you know, what, who knows? It's, but the technology has not slowed down in terms of its capability. It's, it's on the, that growth curve that is pretty, pretty steady in terms of the capacity and speed. So it's, the, the, it's, it's just an amazing thing that has always excited me. And, and like I said, when something comes along, I'm one of the first to buy it and you know, make our house into a smart home kind of thing. That, those are always fun to do. And, and now you can't walk through my house. You have to be careful of what you say because you sure, sure don't, you don't want to use the word S-I-R-I out of context because some, some speaker somewhere is going to talk back to you or A-L-E-X-I. 
or A-L-E-X-A, you know that one, and she'll talk to you as well. So <laughs> you have to be careful, but uh, it's fun. It really is fun. But that was the technology side of myself. And it's, it's interesting that that technology wave has carried into the music as well as what we enjoy. You know, back in the day when we were listening to vinyl records back in the 70s and 60s, you know, that, that evolved into, you know, we've got cassette tapes were of the small portable version, and then CDs came around. Well, CD was a high technology digital music. You could put, you know, 75 minutes or so on a CD, and the quality of the fidelity was really high in a digital form. And that technology, though, kind of went on the typical product life cycle curve as well. And I think it peaked somewhere around the mid-1990s. And then the Internet came along. And that was, I had my Combs Music website up and running. I programmed it myself in 1995, back when the Internet was first around and nobody even knew what it was, really. But I jumped on it. I knew this was going to be important. So I put my music on my website and digitized it, made it an MP3 files so that you could play it. And then, then Napster came along and Napster just about killed us in terms of the music industry. They, they were basically giving away our livelihood, the musicians. They would take copyrighted music and, and basically allow anybody to download it for free. Whereas, you know, we were expecting to be paid for that you buy a CD for 15 bucks or you know, a cassette tape for 10 or $12, you know, you're supposed to get some of that money. Napster was giving it away. Well, that, not just for me, I mean the entire music business really got hit really hard with that because it wasn't just that they, were, they had done it. it was, they lowered the perceived value of music down to nearly zero. You know, why, why would I pay $15 when I can get it for free? You know, it's like all of a sudden gas stations started giving away gasoline. You know, well, yeah, everybody's going to go get it. And then, and maybe that would be a fine thing to find these days. But, uh, you know, you, you, the perceived value of things is very important in the marketplace. Well, music took a big hit. And thanks to Apple with iTunes and the app music, they're downloading music for 99 cents a song in the early 2000s revived, began the revival of the music business back into a more profitable model. So soon as that happened, you know, I got my music put up on iTunes. And, and when Pandora came around to, to let music be put on that for a, a streaming down, which was fascinating to me, I put it up, my, all my music I could on Pandora. And then Spotify came along. Of course, I got all my stuff on Spotify. So I've tried to jump on the technology and stay with the, at least with the curve as it comes along all the way through this journey. But it is, and who knows where it's going now. I mean, everything is still almost instantaneously. You can look at your watch and say, hey, play so-and-so. And next thing you know, it's, it's playing right on your watch. It's, it's amazing. And, you know, on that note, sometimes when I'm on a road trip, I'll just, instead of listening to the radio and keep myself awake, I'll just keep, asking my phone to play whatever song pops into my head and I'll just do that for a couple hours. It's yeah. Amazing. And almost every song you can come up with, with almost every artist you can come up with, it's instantly available. I, you know, I'll, I'll be watching a TV program and they'll mention some such and such of a, a musician passed away and I will 
say, well, we'll play, and I'll just tell my system to play some music by such and such a person, and I can listen to whatever that person's music was that they just talked about. And it's, it's really amazing how instantaneous the availability is. Well, before we talk about how Cohn's music became what it became, quick question about, you talked about the whole history here of uh, how we consume music, how we listen to it. What do you think of the revival that vinyl has had? I am very fascinated with that because I agree and I, and I understand the, the, the difference in the sound and the technology between a digitized high-fidelity uh, high version off of a CD versus a, something that's played on a really high-quality turntable with a good stylus and, and a great vinyl sound. There is, and it, it has to do with the EQ of the, the music and the, the smoothness, the, uh, the, uh, the softness. It, it, it takes the sharp edges. The digital sound is great, but it picks up everything. I mean, every little nuance of a sound that could be not even contributing to the music. And so vinyl didn't do that. Vinyl was pretty much pure music. And it, when you listen to the two side by side, most people say, well, it sounds so much warmer, so much more smooth, so much more soothing, and, and, and it's pleasing to the ear. I think that's the main thing is when you listen to a really good vinyl record, a recording of whether it's the Beatles or whatever it is that you love listening to, man, there's just nothing like that. It's just fantastic. You know, you play it on those old big speakers we used to have and just did just fill the room. It's great. Well, I'm a big audiophile, and I know over the past, like, year and a half, two years, really since, like, the pandemic, I've gotten back into collecting vinyl, and on the days that I'm just sitting here listening to some of these records that I've probably heard billions of times digitally, I'm just like, man, I don't remember hearing that bass sound so like good and smooth or I don't remember like such and such sounding so colorful like I feel like vinyl there it almost sounds a little more colorful like it brings color back to the mm -hmm. music rather than just compressing everything in there and packaging it all up like that so well, you mentioned the word compressing Compression is, and for those of you that are in the recording and music business, know that you know compression of music is used an awfully lot to to bring the range of the sound down within the you know the capability of most average speakers. But when you take that compression away from there and get back to the pure full width of the sound spectrum, uh, it it makes a, a huge difference, and it's a very very pleasing effect to the ear. I have to admit. Yeah, I totally agree. And I have a bunch of records I bought just since I've been in Florida that I can't wait to listen to because <laughs> yeah. I've never heard them on vinyl. I want to see if I hear things that maybe I didn't hear before. So mm -hmm. I could probably go on for the rest of your time. <laughs> talking about this, but. Well, so could I. That It's a great <laughs> subject. It is. And it's a subject that uh, I could go on and on about, but I will 
sadly put that to side and uh, let's actually talk a little bit about how Cone's music came about because you, it, it seemed to me like you were really entrenched in technology and, you know, you were working in that uh, career. And then all of a sudden, you transitioned into music. Now, I know you didn't just wake up one day and decide to become a musician. I'm sure that was something you also did while you were growing up. So how did all this come about? How did you transition into being an entrepreneur and into music? Well, as far as the music is concerned, music has kind of been with me since I was born because my both of my parents were musical. They both played the piano and my father played by ear. My mother had taken piano lessons when she was a little girl. And so when uh, we moved into our first home that we owned, which was in, I think I was about four years old, 1951, and we first finally had room for a piano. So my my parents bought a piano and it sat in the living room. And from that day forward, there was always music in our home. And my father, he would play by ear. He'd sit down and he he loved to play hymns and the old rugged cross or the uh, the uh, amazing grace, whatever songs he just wanted to play. He was great at it. And so from a little kid on up, you know, I was around music all my life with and when we we were active in our church, Baptist church. So we were at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And there was singing hymns and special choir music. I love choral music. I loved it so much that I eventually became a part-time choir director at my home church and then later at a church here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. So I love choral music. So being around music has always been part of me, and it's just a kind of a, a, a complement to my technology side with my career, but everything else was, was music. And even in my career, I was, we started up a choral group to sing at lunchtime at Western Electric. It was the, we had a, we would perform music at lunchtime in the cafeteria at, at, because a lot of people that I worked with were musicians. They loved to sing. We'd get together at lunchtime and, We'd make music. So music's been part of my life all all of my life. And then in, in 1981, I sat down at my piano and I played a song. Now, I would I would sit down at my piano almost every evening after work and just play something just to relax. But this particular evening, I sat down and I played a song. It wasn't a song that I'd heard before. It wasn't, uh, I wasn't sitting down trying to make up a song. I just sat down and literally, Mark, I played this song. And when I finished, it sounded great. I loved it. I didn't think much about it. And my wife, Linda, came home from her job a couple of days later, and she said, Dave, what is the name of this song that I've got stuck in my head? And she, she said, I've hummed it all day long, and, and she hummed a little bit of it. And I said, well, Linda, it doesn't have a name. And she says, what? You play it on the piano all the time. I said, well, yeah, but it's it doesn't have a name. It's just something I made up. Well, she got all excited and said, well, that's great, but have you written it down? I said, no, I'm not going to forget it. I've got it up here. And she said, nope, I want you to write it down. Something might happen to you, and that song would be gone forever. So I said, okay, I will. And so I did, and I happen to have right here with me, this is the, the actual original 
song that I wrote down. It had no name. It just says copyright David M. Combs, 1981. It's when I wrote it. It has the melody and the chords written down on a piece of paper. Put that in my piano bench. Okay, I'm happy. She's happy. So we'll go on a couple of years from there. Some, a baby, uh, some friends of ours had a little baby girl named Rachel. And her parents asked me and Linda to be her godparents. So at little Rachel's christening service, Linda and I are sitting there in this little country church, just us and the family and the minister. And uh, up at the front of the church is a grand piano sitting on the platform, right in the middle of the platform. And so at the, toward the end of the service, I punched Linda and I said, <clears throat> what do you think about me playing this little song now as part of the service? And she thought, well, that's, that may be a good idea. So when the formal part of the service was over, I went up to the family and the minister and said, would it be okay if I played a song uh, at, this at this point on the piano? And they said, sure. So everybody sat back down. I walked over to the piano and sat down, started playing. And I played this tune and I got most of the way through it. And toward the end of the song, I hear <clears throat> throats <clears throat> clearing their throats and a few sniffles here and there. And, you know, a few teardrops coming I'm even out of my eyes. I was getting, it was a little, very emotional service. You know, little babies christening services are touching anyway. So you, you layer on top of that a really sweet piece of music. You're going to, the tear ducts are going to turn on. And at the end of the song, I looked over at little Rachel in the arms of her mother. And I said, from now on, this song will be called Rachel's song in her honor. And that mark is how the song got its name in 1983. Wow, that's amazing. And it, it's a song that really resonated with a lot of people. And this is something that it, it really kind of got you going in another direction in life. And, but you continued to work in technology for a few more years, right? Yeah, that was in 1983. And so three years later, in 1986, I was doing a lot of traveling with my job. We AT&T and Western Electric, were we were revamping our factories, the software that ran the factories and and that was part of my team's job was to help them implement new software. And one of the factories that I was working at and working during the week to cut over new software was in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, Nashville, as you know, is a wonderful town for music. Call it Music City, USA. And Linda said, well, while you're in Nashville, why don't you go and get a demo recording made of Rachel's song, something we could have and enjoy and and something we could give to the family to enjoy and just find a professional musician to record it for us. I said, okay, I'll do that. So I did go driving around Nashville one afternoon after work and looking for a studio. So I head over to the part of town called Na uh, Music Square. It's where the Country Music Hall of Fame is and BMI headquarters, ASCAP headquarters, the RCA original the old studio is located there that you can tour. And, so I'm driving down this one side street. It's called Roy Acuff Place. Roy Acuff was a big, famous, much-loved musician in Nashville. They named a street after him. And down at the end of Roy Acuff Place, on the right, was a big building with a barn-shaped roof. And out front on the corner was this great big 
water wheel. Like they'd, they'd literally moved a water wheel from some mill someplace. And the sign on the side of the building said, the music mill. Oh, okay, <laughs> well, that's clever. So I pulled in the parking lot. Sure enough, I could see through the glass door, there was a man sitting at a desk in the lobby. It was about six o'clock at night, something like that. So I knock on the door and he comes over, unlocks it and opens it. And he says, hi, I'm George Clinton. Can I help you? Now, it's not the same George Clinton and everybody jumps to the conclusion of this is another George Clinton. He's a recording engineer. But I didn't know that at the time. All I knew was he was working there. He I told him what I was looking for. I was looking for a studio. And he says, well, come on in. And as I stepped into the door, into the lobby, over on the left, this big two-story lobby, there was a giant life-size picture of Glenn Campbell. And right smack in front of me was a life-size picture up on the wall of the group Alabama. And then the Forrester Sisters life-size picture over here. And then there were gold records and platinum records. The, the walls were just plastered with all these award-winning recordings. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. So I told George, I said, I have never stepped foot in a studio until now. And he said, uh, well, let me give you a, a tour of the place. There's nobody recording right now, and let's go and do a tour. So we went over into Studio A, the big studio. So we walk into the big room, and you could put an orchestra in that room. It was huge, a big room, big uh, nine-foot concert grand piano over in the corner and you know, rooms for the vocalists and the drummers, all that. It was a great big room. And he said, let's go into the control room where all the – the magic happens over here. So he opens this big, about eight foot, eight inches thick, sound, soundproof door into this, the control room. So we open this door and we walk in. First thing I see is this big console, the control console. It, it looked about eight feet long. It had rows and rows and rows of sliders and switches and knobs and lights. And it was an amazing looking console. And so around the room were all these big recording machines and uh, on each side of this big glass window where you could look out into where the musicians were, there was these great big speakers, the monitor speakers. And Boy, that was an impressive, I told George, I said, I'll bet you could launch a spaceship from this room. <laughs> the technology looked like something from NASA. And so anyway, um, he said, well, this is, this is where it all happens. I said, well, how much does this place rent for? And he says, this is $125 an hour plus engineer. And he probably noticed that my face probably went, hmm, it's not going to work. <laughs> and he said, well, Dave, he said, don't worry about it. He said, the fellow that owns this studio owns another little studio across the street in a, what used to be a little rent house. It's a two, two-bedroom rent house, and now they've got a little studio in it. And he said, that studio is $15 an hour plus engineer. Okay, I can handle the $15 an hour. I said, okay, George, now what I need, I just need a good musician, a good piano player to play my song for me. He said, it's a very simple little song on the piano. And he thought for a second, he says, I know just the person. He said, there's this guy named Gary Prim, who's a fabulous piano player, fabulous session musician. And I've known him since he was a little kid. And he said, we're great friends. We go to church together. He said, he'll, he'll do a great job for you. So let's go over back to my desk and I'll look up his phone number for you. So he did. He wrote it on a piece of paper and gave me Gary Prim's phone number. Well, I got that back out to my rental car and I hightailed it back to the hotel. Now, you may think, well, why didn't you call him on your cell phone? 
this was 1986, cell phones hadn't been invented yet. So <laughs> I had to go back to the hotel where the landline was so I could call Gary. I called Gary, got his answering machine, and he called me back in a couple, in about 30 minutes. And he says, hi, this is Gary Prim. Can I help you? I said, yep. I've, George Clinton says you're a great piano player and would could do a great job of doing a demo recording of a song I've written. And he said, why, sure, I can do that. I said, what do you need from me, Gary? He says, I just need a, uh, a recording of you playing it so I kind of know what it sounds like. And he said, I, then I need a lead sheet. I said, okay, what is a lead sheet? <laughs> he, he chuckled. And he said, well, it's, it's, it's very simple. He says, it's just the melody and the chords written out on a piece of paper. And I said, oh, I've got that. I just didn't know to call it a lead sheet. That was <laughs> this original piece of paper I wrote it down on. Now I know it's, it, this is a lead sheet. So I got back home that weekend and I sent Gary the lead sheet and the recording of me playing it. And two weeks later, we met in this little studio across the street from the music mill. This was August the 22nd, 1986 at 6 p.m. I never will forget it because that night changed my life. That recording was unbelievable. So in, uh, and I'd, I'd love to walk you through this recording. It is really a, a fascinating process. If you ever get the chance to sit in on a recording process of a song, do so. It is a marvelous experience. So here's what happened. About six o'clock, Gary Prim comes in with his Yamaha DX7 synthesizer under his arm, and he comes in and he sets it down, and then, uh, and he's just a mighty friendly fellow. I mean, he's one of those people that's just instantly friendly, just friend for life. And so he sits down with the little baby grand piano that's in the studio and he starts warming up. And so I go back into the control room where the engineer is and he's setting up the tape recorder and the, the microphones and all that. And so pretty soon we're all ready. <clears throat> Gary motions to the engineer that he's ready to record too. So we're ready. And the engineer pushes record on the machine and, and he's, we're rolling. Telling the through the little speaker to Gary, so Gary knows to start. And Gary starts playing my song. Now remember, I have never heard my own song played by anybody but me, so I had Mark no idea what to expect from this music. I knew it was probably going to be great, but I had no idea how just how great it was going to be. I was blown away. So Gary's playing through there, and then, then he stops, and I thought, oh, what's going on? And he said. <clears throat> Rewind that back. Let's they said I can do better than that. So we rewound the tape back to the beginning, push record again, and Gary starts all over and plays the whole song through on the piano. No mistakes at all. I mean, it was flawless from beginning to end. And if he had stopped right then and said, okay, I'm done, I'm ready to go home, I'd have been happy because what I heard was fantastic. It was absolutely beautiful piano solo. But Gary says, nope. He said, I've been thinking about this and I've got some other planned uh, other instruments to use along with the piano. He says, I want to put in there some electric piano sound with the synthesizer that will make those piano sounds sound much richer sounding, a real full sound. He says, I'm going to do that. So we, he said, give me two more tracks. So we've got two more tracks to record. And he puts on his headset to, so he can hear the original piano part through his ears and play along with himself on the keyboard. So we record that and he's playing the electric piano part 
unbelievable. He nails it. Absolutely nails it. When you listen to the recording, you can't tell there's not but one instrument playing. It's not none of this. Everything's out of sync. It is right on top of each other. Amazing. So we record the electric piano. And then Gary says, well, I need some. Uh, I'm, the song needs some bottom and some top. He said, I'm going to put some some low strings for the bottom, and I want to put some high strings like violins at the top. So give it a really wide range of sound. So two more tracks on the recorder and record the, uh, the low strings. And then two more tracks, he records the high strings. And then he said, you know, right through the, some part of that, he said, it just needs a little more punch. And so he said, I want to put a, a horn sound in there. So, okay, two more tracks, horn sound, record those. He said, okay. Now I think we've got it. So he comes into the control room, and so it's me and Gary and the engineer standing there, and the engineer will fix it up so you play, it and we can hear all of it together. And we're we're listening to it. I can't believe my ears. I was absolutely blown away by what I heard. I'd never heard anything any better on the radio ever. It just was that good. And when he finished, Gary says, "Well, that's exactly what I." Wanted and it sounds good to me. I said, it sounds great to me too. So I wrote him a check for our agreed upon fee and he packed up his synthesizer and out the door he went to go home. And I didn't know whether I'd ever see Gary Prem ever again uh, in my life or not. Turns out that that young man and I would go back in the studio over the next 15 years and record over 170 songs in the studio. But I didn't know that at the time. And so he, he became like a, almost like a brother, either like family, like a, he's, he's that, that close. We still talk and uh, communicate almost every day, one, one way or other, even today. So that was the beginning of the recording of Rachel's song. And so, of course, I left the studio that night with, he made me some cassette tapes of the song and my master tape. And so I paid the engineer and I left. And that night changed my life i can remember sitting in my car playing that song listening to it over and over and over and saying to myself man this is it this is it you know how when something just some light bulb just comes up goes off in your head that some revelation that oh man this is it it's probably like the, the you know like the day i first met my wife linda <laughs> when she left i said well She's it. That's the one right there. <laughs> it's that kind of a revelation to yourself. And, and and that to me tells me that you're somebody who listens to your intuition. And that's what that tells me. You had something else you wanted to say. I cut you <laughs> off. No, no, I was I was I was gonna let you you come in there and you're right though it was I, I did listen to my intuition and my my gut told me that this song was special and my inclination was I wanted to share this song to everybody I could play it for I mean I it was it sounded that great to me and I could not wait to play that song the recording for anybody that would listen you know the guys that I was working with at, at AT&T I play it in my rental car at lunchtime, and you know, I, even that night when I got back to my hotel, I, I after I called Linda and told her about the recording session, and I had no way for her even, I couldn't even play it for her because I had no way to, for her to even hear it until we got till I got home. So I'm after I talked to Linda, I'm sitting there in the hotel, and I thought, man, I got to play this for somebody. 
I was so antsy. I got up, I got up back out in my rental car. I went to a shopping center and I drove to a circuit city, which was kind of like a best buy is now it was a big store that sold stereos. I walked in there with my cassette tape and I found a salesperson. And I said, uh, I've got a cassette tape of some music here that I want to hear on the best stereo system you've got in this store. So he said, well, let's go over to our big high end room over here. So we went over there and he played it on the great big speakers and turned it up and it sounded great. It sounded so great that all the customers in the, the entire store stopped to hear this music. And it, so I saw firsthand that not only was I moved by the music, everybody else that heard it was. So, uh, and that has been true ever since. And that was what, 41 years ago? And that song today, even when you play it, and when you go to my website, you can play it for free right on the front of my website. And I, I promise you that song will touch your heart too. And I hope, hope that you can listen to it in a really quiet environment where you can really hear all the subtleties of the song. And, and when you listen to that song that's from my website, guess what? That recording on my website is the original demo recording that I heard that night in, in August of 1986. Has not been remastered, not been remixed. So when you listen to it, now that I've told you all that process, I want you to close your eyes and picture yourself in there in that studio with me listening to this recording being made, because that is what you're going to be hearing. You'll hear when the electric piano starts in with the real piano, and you'll hear when the, the low strings come in and the high string. You'll hear when those horns come in, and it's quite an experience. So. I hope that this description has allowed you to at least visualize yourself into that studio with me that wonderful evening. No, I I know I can visualize it just based on my background. I've been not in a recording session like you were in, but I mean, I know what a big time, quote unquote, big time production of like, a TV show or movie is like just based on my experiences in the business. So I can imagine, especially all those years ago, taking your composition and having it, you know, orchestrated and put together in a professional environment. I mean, that's amazing. It, amazing back then probably still pretty amazing it is today. yes yeah. it is it's and you know any any opportunity i would ever have to sit in on anybody's recording session which i have done in the past when i'm in nashville get invited by the engineer to why don't you come over so and so is recording today and just sit there and watch the professional musicians perform it's a real honor and a, a real thrill to just hear some of those and sometimes you get to to hear some really famous, really super talented artists as well. And you know what I found out in Nashville? Those people are as humble, by and large, as anybody you'd ever want to meet. They're they're not stuck on themselves and all this and, you know, trying to be standoffish. They're very welcoming and very warm people, you know, whether it's Randy Travis or, or Ricky Skaggs or any of those people or, you know, uh, they're just just wonderful people and to hear them perform it is really a thrill to to hear that talent in in action it's just amazing 
Well, I think it's a different mindset than something that's a little more uh, Hollywood guys, for lack of a better word <laughs> there. So I think if you're somebody who's a little more grounded and really looking to touch people in a pretty personal way, you know, Nashville is a good place to go. And that's something that you learn firsthand. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, our recording engineer, his name is Ronnie Light. He was there from the beginning and was with us through all of the recordings. And, you know, he also is is a dear, dear friend. And we, we email each other almost every day. And it's just a, a wonderful relationship. And I really envy Ronnie because Gary Prim is still very active in the studio in Nashville. He is highly in demand by all the, the any famous you ask anybody in nashville do you know gary prim <laughs> most of them will say do i know him he is the best on the, the keyboard and on the piano so they are involved with making this kind of music every day so it's what a wonderful occupation to be around that much creativity every day of your working life it's just that just has to be an amazing thing whether you're the re artists like Gary or whether you're the recording engineer like Ronnie Light, they they just they're they can tell you stories all day long of their relationships with famous people that you and I would instantly know and their stories are just so fascinating. Well speaking of doing this every day, how did this help you and Combs music to evolve into what what it is now? Well, it was a slow process, obviously, with the beginning of one song recorded in 1986 and the first album, Rachel's Song, with other songs that I'd written along with that one, put on an album. That was in 1988. And so in 1988, then, I had an album to sell to the public and again, get played on the radio as well, obviously, but, but mainly to sell to the public. The question was, how do you sell it to the public and how do you, how do you get the public to even hear it other than the radio? And my, I had approached the record stores, which back then we had one called Record Bar and I, there was uh, Tower Records was another one. And so the, all those big box stores, they didn't have wouldn't have anything to do with me because they my music was instrumental. It wasn't rock. It wasn't country. It wasn't jazz. It was kind of something they it wasn't in their bailiwick so in what in their wheel wheelhouse so i didn't get anywhere with them so i was forced into finding a way to get my music sold to the public through another venue through another channel and there wasn't any other channel that existed so i had to create my own and which i did myself and two other musicians one in california one in the midwest were doing the same thing we were we had created instrumental music that was very soothing and relaxing and people wanted to buy it. And what we had found was a way to sell it in gift shops around the country, places that would play the music because it would, it needed to be heard to be bought. It wasn't where a, a customer walked in the store and says, Hey, uh, do you all carry Rachel's song? <laughs> no, that wasn't the way it worked. They walk into the store, Rachel's songs playing on the sound system in there and they go, Whoa, what is that music that's playing? Do you have it for sale? And, and if they did, it was in a little basket by the cash register and they buy it and take it home with them. And that became known as the play and the sell market. 
So I created my own sales channel, and it didn't take too long, about maybe two or three years before the rest of the music business discovered my channel, and they started coming into it as well. But that was how I got started, was basically getting people to play it so that people could hear it, and then they could buy it from the, the shop. And I en ended up with over a thousand gift shops all over the United States playing and selling my music. And that was what enabled me to quit my job at AT&T in 1992 to do my music full time from that point forward. So you were basically doing what a lot of people do with technology, you know, just the way you can record something and get it right out there to people. You were basically doing that well before a lot of other people were doing it. Yeah, that's right. And now that we have the internet and the, the technology, we can create something on your the music in your home studio using your laptop uh, garage band studio or whatever you use to record it. You can create your own album of music or songs of music and you can upload them instantly to YouTube if you want to do a video with it, or you can upload it to uh, uh, in streaming services like Spotify or iHeartRadio or uh, iTunes, Apple iTunes, and instantly it can make it available. Now, the, the real trick, though, is that's the easy part, so to speak. It's not really the easy part, but that's the easier to make it, to, to turn it into a, a business model. The, the hard part is getting it through to the audience so that they hear it and then decide that I want to download this or I want to I want to stream it on my 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 phone or my laptop or whatever. And that is hard to do now because that marketplace is so crowded. There are literally millions of people making writing music and writing songs and recording them, putting them up on the medium and making it available. So you have to have a find a way to differentiate differentiate yourself from all that other and cut through the noise and, and be able to reach your market. So it's a very crowded marketplace. It's very much like Mark, like the, the podcast market right now. There are only about what, two, uh, two or three million podcasts around the world with more and more coming online every day. So how do you distinguish the you know mark my words podcast versus somebody else's podcast so why would they listen to your podcast as opposed to somebody else's when there's only about two or three million to choose from so that is a challenge and that is hard to do and that is the essence of really smart marketing and thinking about your 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 product and your service in a very smart way to reach the targeted audience you're trying to reach yeah, I mean, that's kind of just the world that we live in now where there's so much available to us, but there's so much competition too. And mm -hmm. you hit it right on the head as far as distinguishing what makes you different from everybody else. And I feel like you were so far ahead of your time because you figured out through your song, through Rachel's song, through everything else you were doing, you figured out how to market yourself, what made you different. You found your niche. You did all these things 
these entrepreneurial uh, things that people like me are learning today. And many of us think that this is kind of like a new thing that, you know, learning to be entrepreneurial in that sense where you learned that in a totally different era and you were so successful. I think it speaks volumes for, you know, you, your, your intelligence, your ability, your intuition, just amazing. I hope anybody who listens to your story and listens to this episode are inspired because I know I am just not only am I inspired through your story and hearing how you were so entrepreneurial in ways that people are like teaching each other and learning now, but we had a major interruption in the middle of this interview. You did not miss a beat. And you were you were amazing telling this story, which may or may not sound edited once I edit it because <laughs> I apparently uh, have to change email addresses for these uh, episodes. But putting that aside, I mean, just remarkable. Your whole story, how you put everything together for yourself. I mean, what's, what's next for you? Well, I have taken it upon myself to try to spread the word about my stories and my, and it's really two pronged. One is the music, of course. I want more people to hear my music. Uh, that, that's kind of an understatement. Uh, there's millions of people have heard Rachel's song and some of my other music, but there are billions of people who have not. So I, one of my missions is to expose my music through whatever means I can to as many people as possible so that they will, whether accidentally or on purpose, find my music and listen to it. Because I know from personal experience, when they do, they will be touched by my music. And that's the title of my book that I wrote, Touched by the Music, because I've heard from over 50,000 people over the years. I've kept all those letters and notes. They're, my basement has probably 25 or 30 boxes of letters and notes. And so I've, I've went through all of those. They're unbelievably in, uh, inspiring stories, touching stories. You better get your box of Kleenex out when you're reading them. Some of them are really, really touching, whether it's the birth of a child or the death of a loved one, or, you know, there's all kinds, the whole range of, of where music has impacted somebody's life. Well, that prompted me to write my book, uh, Touched by the Music. And I wanted to tell those, some of those stories and I also wanted to share some of these same stories that we've talked about tonight or today on the podcast. And those are in my book as well. And I want those to be inspiring for any entrepreneur or anyone that wants to consider doing something more with the gifts that they have, whether it's a gift of writing music, of singing music, of performing music, or painting, or sculpting, or public speaking, or you know, all kinds of gifts. Everyone has kind of a gift, whether it is in a, it may be as simple as a gift of a sweet smile. When's the last time you walked up by somebody at a, at a, a on a greenway or at the grocery store and they gave you a, a really nice smile that, that you, I know you in your mind, you said, man, that, that seems like a really friendly, nice person. Well, just that momentary gift of a, of a wonderful smile sometimes is 
is a gift to somebody when they need it. So there, everybody has their gifts. And my book is intended to hopefully inspire people to get your gifts out of, out of yourself and give them away to other people. Use your gifts. Give them away. And the more you give, the more you get kind of thing. So that's the entrepreneurial side of it, as well as the music side. So that's what I'm really about these days is talking on podcasts like this or any opportunity I have to speak with people about my stories that hopefully will inspire them. And then my music hopefully will also inspire and touch them as well. Well, I certainly know that your story has inspired me. And for this being the first podcast I've done in several weeks, it's yet another reminder for me of why I do it, which is to be inspired and to be uplifted. And that's part of what it's all about for me. I hope other people listening get that same feeling, but this is why I do it. This is why I like meeting people like you. And I mean, what a great story and really inspirational and considering how long ago you started your journey and with less tools, quote unquote, than we have today, you took all of that and made it happen. And that's just amazing and really inspiring. And before we run out of time on this, uh, <laughs> on this meeting, I, I should ask you, how can people find you? Like, I know you have a website, your music is out there. How can people find you if they want to connect with you or learn more about you? Well, I've made it very simple for them. I, my website is, is very easy to remember, too. Just remember my last name, Combs, Dave Combs, it's C-O-M-B-S, and my website is Combs Music, C-O-M-B-S music.com. And when you go there on my website, it's a very simple landing page. On the left of the screen, you'll see the picture of the cover of my book. And underneath it will be a link that says buy on Amazon. And when you go to Amazon, it'll take you right to that book page where you can actually listen to me read some of it to you. There's a, you can look inside and see about the first two chapters if you want to read that online. And you can purchase it as a paperback book or as an a, uh, audible book or an ebook on, on an electronic, a Kindle book. So you can read it on your laptop or your uh, iPad or whatever tablet you have. And then on the other side of my page is a picture of the CD of Rachel's song. And underneath it is a link that says buy on Amazon. So it'll click there and it'll take you right to the, the page for the Amazon CD on Amazon. You can buy the CD or you if you can download the you can purchase an MP3 file of the whole album. You can buy an MP3 of each song. I think they're 99 cents a song. And you can also, if you're an Amazon Music subscriber, you can just stream the music for free right from the Amazon website. And then uh, equally important, right in the middle of my website on the first page, there's a link that says play Rachel's song. And I put it up. It's the, re it's the song. It's the original MP3 file, unedited, un un -remastered, no, no remastering. It's the original recording, just as I heard it in 1986. So... You click that button, 
you'll be listening to the Rachel song, the whole song. And so, and the, my email address is at the bottom of the screen. And at the top, you can, there's some more read about me, more read about Gary Prim. And, and I, you can also listen to some of my interviews I've done. I've, I think I've done about 75 of these podcasts. You can listen to some of these and me telling the, the stories on those podcasts. But so my website, but the main thing is the fir first page is very simple. Book, CD, and play Rachel's song, homesmusic.com. Well, Gabe, thank you very much for sharing your amazing story with me and the rest of the audience. And thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule with all these uh, interviews you're doing to be on Mark My Words. I appreciate it. And I had a blast. And thank you for putting up with the walkiness of this uh, Zoom here. I'll have to look into that. But uh, thank you very much. And, well, Mark, uh, thank, thank you, you very much for having me, Mark. This was I know this was your first session back from your, your big move, and I thought it went well, and I was, I was looking forward to this all day today. And so it's, it's a pleasure to, to talk with you again, and I think we've had a good time today, and I hope that your audience enjoys it as well. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much for being on Mark My Words. And I am Mark Schmidt. This was Dave Combs of Combs Music. And you just listened to Mark My Words. I'll be back very soon with a new episode. Thank you and bye for now. Thanks again for taking time out of your busy day to listen to Mark My Words. If you would like to connect with me beyond the show, you can find me on LinkedIn at Mark Schmidt, where I will be talking about entrepreneurship, careers, and anything else that is on my mind. You can also connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Nimrod1979 and Nimrod sending I respectively. This podcast also has a page on Instagram at Mark My Words. And finally, if you want to leave me a voicemail or check out what I'm up to with the podcast, come find me at podpage.com slash mark dash my dash words. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back with a new episode soon. Bye for now.